You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. There's a TV show called Shark Tank, all right? Um, It's been around for several seasons now. Since then, I've watched a couple shows, and it's really actually quite interesting. Essentially, a person will come before five potential investors, and they they would approach them seeking seed money for a stake in their company or royalty or whatever it is. And one shark may say, you know, I'll give you $100,000 for 30% of your company, but the original offer was $100,000 for 20%, not 30%. So the person pitching the product will essentially have to, you know, either accept it or risk the chance of losing the deal if they uh, are interested in offers from the other sharks. And they're really kind of curious to see who would offer a better or a different deal at least. And I realized that after watching just a couple of shows that really much of how we interact with other people here in this world is actually quite similar. When I purchased our car a few years ago, the, the salesperson said, hey, Mr. Lim, um, it'll cost you X amount. And I said, no, no deal. <laughs> and he said, well, that's the lowest our manager will allow us to go. And then he said, look, I got kids to feed. Yeah, yeah. I I said, yeah, yeah, well, so do I. And he said, you know, my entire salary is based off of commission, and that if I went any lower, then you'd be robbing us. Like, he's unloaded his life story. I think it's because I told him that I was a pastor before, and maybe he was expecting me to be a little bit more merciful. Like, I'm telling you, I am a pastor who's all about grace, but I'm also a pastor who's looking to save a buck or two, all right? So after he told me repeatedly that this was the bottom line and me knowing the actual invoice and their inventory and and the fact that there's always incentives for them, I said, look, yes, you can budge. You can. I said, everything is negotiable. And if, if you won't give me a better deal, then I've got time. I'll hold out. I'll hold out for a better ship. If you're not going to give it to me here at this dealership, then I'm going to walk across the street and go to the other dealership. But it's not, I'm not the only one that does that. That's how we all live. If you don't like something, just hold out for a better deal. And because it's such a widespread reality, we sometimes have a difficult time understanding the nature of God's binding covenant. That's why so many people, when they look at the Bible and they say, hmm, I like this, but I don't like that. I like this part, but I don't like that. I like how God is here in this Old Testament or New Testament, but I don't like how God is depicted here. I don't want to do this, and this doesn't work for me. I'll just go to the self-help section at Borders Bookstore or Barnes Noble where it says, you know, it's your life. You live how you see fit. You do what's best for you. Because God's covenant isn't like some sort of labor contract where we gather the two parties and everyone sits down at the negotiating table and we try to work out some sort of arrangement and everyone says, is that good for you? Is that good for you? Will this work for you? Are, are we all good? Are we, are we all willing to accept these terms? No, instead, God's covenant is more like this treaty called the ancient suzerainty treaty. And this is how it worked, okay? Listen to me. There's a big, powerful king and he'd make a treaty with a weaker, lesser, little neighbor king or nation. And so in this treaty, the big, powerful king would offer his protection. 
but he would always impose, also impose his governing rules and also demand whatever else that he needed from that smaller, lesser nation. Maybe it's more military men if he's going to go into battle. And definitely he would impose his taxes on them. Now, as in life, there's always a choice. And this weaker king had a choice. He can either A, surrender to the control of the bigger and stronger king and enjoy the protection, or B, he can refuse and suffer the consequences. But there was no such thing as renegotiating of the treaty. You're either with him or you're against him. And so that's really our first point. We need to surrender ourselves to God's terms. God's terms. We need to surrender ourselves to his terms. Can I say it? Can I hear an amen? amen? Now, that's how God deals with Abram in this chapter. In verse 1, God appears and he lays out the terms of Abram's relationship with him. God says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. In other words, God says, look, Abram, I am God. And I am sovereign. And I expect you to surrender the control of your life over to me and do what I say. So what responsibility will the greater king, i.e. God, have? We read in, verse, in eight verses here. God says, I will confirm my covenant. I will greatly increase your numbers. This is God saying, this is my part. Okay, I will greatly increase your numbers. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant. I will give you an everlasting possession, and I will be your God. This is what he's saying to Abram. This is my part. This is my responsibility. I will be your God. But then in verse 9, here's where we see the lesser kings come in. God begins to say, now Abram, as for you, and that's where we begin to look for conditions. What's Abram got to do now? God says, I will, I will, I will, I will. He says that seven times to Abram. Now what's Abram's role? What's his responsibility? And we look and we read and we don't find anything. In fact, all we find is that Abram's obedience to God must be unconditional. Do you get what's happening here? God's saying this. He's saying, I will, I will, I will, I will do this. This is who I am. I'm the greater king. I'm the more powerful king. I'm the bigger king. And as for your responsibility, your roles, I'm not giving you any specific details. I'm not giving you any specific details because all I want from you is to trust me. Do you get that? Is to trust me. There's no mention of having to follow this particular commandment or visit a holy city at least once a year or have this kind of occupation or enter into ministry or marry this type of person or give this amount of money or pray five times a day or give all your possessions away or whatever. The lack of stipulation is scary for us in this day and age because what God is saying is this. He's saying, I want you to be committed to me completely, unconditionally. That's the type of commitment. That's the type of relationship we're going to have. Know that I am God and what I want from you is not what you can do, but I want you to trust me and know I am God. What I want for you is more important than the very life you live, the very air you breathe, and the dreams you dream. He's saying this to Abram. Will you give me access? Will you give me complete control of your life? That's scary, isn't it? Whew, that's scary. This is something the unbelieving world has a hard time accepting, that God is God, and that he has a right to this claim. 
That's one of the differences between chapter 15 and 17. Chapter 15, God, he privately enters into a covenant with Abram, makes it very clear that his covenant is all about grace. Remember, it was God who took the oath and he did the covenant to walk between the split sacrifices. What was Abram doing? He was knocked out. He was asleep. He was helpless. But it was God who made this oath alone because it was all about pure grace. God made the oath with you. He took it. Now here in chapter 17, God, he publicly confirms that covenant that he has made, giving a covenant sign. And now he doesn't just emphasize the grace, but now he emphasizes his sovereignty. It's not just about the grace anymore. Now he's emphasizing his sovereignty. He's saying, now, not only am I just going to do this for you, but now I want you to understand and appreciate and accept the fact that I am your God. That I am in control. That I am sovereign. So here's where it gets a bit personal for us. I think you and I, we all love hearing and having a God of grace who will be gracious, a God who is merciful. When we fail, he is there for us. When we stumble, he is there for us. When we fall flat on our faces, he is there for us. His grace is lavished upon us. His mercy is given to us every single day. I mean, Abram heavily relied on God's grace when he failed God by having an affair with Hagar right after God had made that amazing covenant with him. Grace was needed. So while we love a God of grace, while we love a God of compassion, and we love a God of mercy, most of us do not want a God who claims complete control over us, don't we? In other words, we prefer having a God who swoops in when we need him, the hovering mom always with a band-aid ready for our scrapes and boo-boos when we play, but we certainly don't want a God who tells us how to play. We don't want a God who makes demands and has terms, do we? It's my life, God. I'll accept your grace. I'll accept salvation. I'll accept the fact that, Jesus, you are Savior. You have given me the ticket to heaven. But to be the Lord of my life, I'm not sure if I can do that. Look, God's grace is amazing. God's covenant is all about grace because it's either all grace or nothing at all because none of us can stand on our own holiness. But the God of grace we worship is also on the other side of the coin, the God of sovereignty, meaning not only will he be God for us, as in, as in we need God's grace, as in we need his forgiveness, as in we need his providence, that he is God for us, but it also means that he must be God to us. Does that make sense? He just can't be God for us. He's not some genie. He's not some Santa Claus that we can just wish for. He must also be God to us. He must be the Lord over our lives. Is he the Lord over your life? Is he God to you? So changes were made. In fact, God, he changed their names. Now, names are important. Some say that hearing their names is the sweetest word in the world to their ears. So when a loved one or significant other says your name, it's memorable. It's personal. It's like as if, let's say, a husband and wife uh, and their spouse passes away, but they have recordings. And just to be able to hear my wife or my husband say my name or hear her voice, it's amazing. It's intimate. And when I first met Grace, and when she first called me David, even though I told her repeatedly to call me the Reverend, I'm just kidding. <laughs> But when she first called me David, it was so much different from when other people called me David. It was. It was just more intimate. 
I'm not saying she said it in a weirder way. She wasn't like, hey, I'm not going to start. But it was different. It was intimate. And as important and intimate as Abram and Sarai was to them, God changed it. He changed Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah. Now, made for us, it seems like a minor change, not a big issue at all, but it wasn't a small thing. The name Abram meant father of many. Now, when people asked, how many? Your father of many? That's what Abram means? How many? He would have to say, um, well, none. I don't have any kids. But then God changed Abram, father of many, to Abraham, which meant what? Father of blessings? Father of promises? Was it father of heroism? That the fact that he saved his, his nephew Lot and did that amazing thing, beating the king? What did Abraham mean? It meant father of multitude. So he changed from father of many to father of multitude. So just imagine this. Let's say he's going out to hang out with his friends. And he goes, hey guys, I changed my name. And they're like, oh yeah? It's about time. Your name was ridiculous. You don't have any kids. It's so stupid. I mean, you're 99 years old. You're not going to have any more kids. You're not going to have any kids, for that matter. So what's your new name, Abram? And he goes, Abraham, father of a multitude. Can you hear the laughter? Do you see how ridiculous this must have been for others? Now, we won't get into it, but his name wasn't the only change that God brought. God, God also commanded him to be circumcised. Now, I'm not going to talk about circumcision today, but think of the name change and think of circumcision this way, that his name is personal, and changing it would be painful. And so is circumcision. This act of faith, trusting in the sovereignty of God to enter into this communion, this covenant with God, meant that this faith, like the name change, like the circumcision, it penetrated even to the most personal area of Abraham's life in the most painful way. And this is what you and I, we need to think about today. How have you allowed your faith to penetrate your life? How have you allowed your faith to penetrate your life? For many people, we only allow our faith to impact our Sunday morning or afternoons. Some of us allow our faith to penetrate our early morning devotions, but we won't allow our faith to penetrate our private relationships, our sinful thoughts and motives, our secret sins. We won't allow our faith to penetrate and emerge in our workplaces or in our school places. We say those places, those relationships, those areas of our lives are off limits. And let me tell you something here. Nothing is off limits to God. God. Nothing. Nothing about you. Nothing of who you are. Nothing of all the acclaim and all the worth and all that you've succeeded and all that you've accomplished is off limits to the God of the universe. Christ's life, his death and resurrection, it wasn't simply to help you in one area, in one facet of your life, to help you become a more patient dad or a more patient mom or a husband or a wife or a sister or a brother. None. It wasn't just to help you through a particular addiction. You see, the work of the cross was meant to change us from the inside out. Every aspect, every arena, every part of who you are, destroying sin at its root, changing the deadness of our spirits into one that is alive in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. That is what the gospel is. Every part of who you are belongs to God and needs to be surrendered to God, not just for what he can give, not just for his grace, not just for his mercy, but we must surrender and say, God, control me. Control me. I don't trust myself. 
I'm living in a fallen world wrapped with fallen flesh. God, Holy Spirit, come and consume me and control me. God, be sovereign over my life. My last point is that God is able to do everything he's promised. Do you know that God's ways are greater than our ways? Amen. That his plans are beyond our wildest dreams. You know, I remember last year during the summer, I asked my daughter, I said, Ada, what do you want for dessert? Now, here's the thing. She ate so well. She ate dinner so well. Now, if you're a parent, you know one of the greatest joys of being a parent is to see your child just eat well, right? Some of you guys are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. That's fine. You'll get there. You'll see. And she ate so well that night. Grace and I were giving each other high fives. I mean, we were just so happy. And so I wanted to treat her, and I said, you know what, Ada, what do you want for dessert? And she said, hmm. She was two years old at that time. And she said, hmm, I want, I want water. I said, water, my poor child, have I not been hydrating you enough? <clears throat> I said, no, Ada, what do you want? Daddy will get you anything. You ate so well, I'm so happy. Look at your little tummy sticking out. She said, hmm, I want milk. I'm like, you have milk. It's right in front of you. What do you want for dessert? And I said, Ada, how about you, daddy, and mommy, this is before Junior came, that you, daddy, and mommy, that we all go get some ice cream. She goes, yes! <laughs> She's like, yes! Her tiny little fists going up in the air saying, that's what I want. Oh, why wasn't I even thinking of that? How many times have we wished for milk when the entire time God's like, I'm planning and wanting to give you ice cream. I got something better for you. We always tend to limit God and what he can do for us and what he wants to do through us. In verse 1, we read, I am God Almighty. He's, he's, trying to, he's trying to really just embed that into us, isn't he? He's saying of all the difficulties of life and all the you know, circumstances and stuff like that, thinking that our life, lives are frail and that there's no hope and, and we feel just blocked and obstructed and God's saying, um, child, I am God Almighty. The name God calls himself is actually El Shaddai. Can you all say El Shaddai? God Almighty. This is the very first time this name is used for God in the Bible. And, but why is it important? Because within this name speaks of God's power. Within this name speaks of God's might over the frailty and the weakness and limitedness of man. El Shaddai, God Almighty, is literally translated as God who is sufficient. He is enough for us. Now throughout this passage, God is saying, I promise, Abram, hear me, child. I promise the impossible, for I am El Shaddai. So remember, for years, God, he's promised Abram land. He's promised him descendants. Look, we all know that by now it's old news, but now God promises, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Verse 6, then verse 16, God says about Sarah, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will become many, she will become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. God, he is establishing an everlasting covenant, and what's more, 
is that according to verses 12, 13, let me read this real quick. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, verse 13, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. So what is God saying here? He's saying this. He's saying, Abram, Abram's problem is that he's just thinking in a very narrow-minded way. He's thinking that through physical descendants, Abram's thinking that perhaps just people from his family, like this is how God's just going to work through my life, just my physical descendants, just through the people in my family. But what God is saying is this. He's saying, I'm intending to include every servant born in your house, every foreigner, because the blessing of nations was intended to include Gentiles, was intended to include everyone from the beginning. You see, it's more than just a family thing. But for Abram, he's thinking, He's thinking milk. And not only that, brothers and sisters, we just can't put God in a box anymore. Because God wasn't satisfied with just using natural means to accomplish this. You see, Abraham was perfectly content with his son, Ishmael. He's probably now 13 years old. Abraham, he's got his wish. He got a son. And he has an heir, and he was content you see, for Abraham, again, he was, his dessert was just milk. But God said, uh-uh, I got something bigger. I got something better for you. Because, no, it's not going to be done through Ishmael. Yes, I'll bless Ishmael, but, but my promises will be supernaturally carried out through the son, which will be born to Sarah. Sarah, who is now 90 years old, and Abraham, who is now 100 years old. And, we're, and they're probably thinking, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? If the covenant was through Ishmael, then it must be dependent on man working out God's promises. Look, God says, I'm going to bless you through your son, through your children. And Abraham and Sarah, they said, you know, I'm going to put matters into my own hands. And so that's what they did. They sinned, they doubted God, and they got Ishmael through Hagar. And so Abraham's thinking, I got it, God. I helped you out because, God, you clearly need my help. I have a son named Ishmael. But if, that, if God settled with Ishmael, then that meant, you know what? That God's promises were dependent on Abram. And that can't be. No, God's promises, his covenant is not dependent on you or me or anyone else. Because what God sets out to do, he can and will accomplish. Even if there seems to be natural things that are obstacles, they still cannot stop God because God, he created them. So hear me out, people. What God made clear to Abraham concerning his mighty power, the power of El Shaddai, it also applies to you and me. Where is God Almighty, the El Shaddai, the God who's sufficient? Where is that displayed for us? How, do, how, is that, how can we make that real for us today? It's revealed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Hallelujah. Else should I. Now, people all around us are constantly trying to dilute the gospel to meaning something else. They try to distort the promises and weaken the power of God into something more palatable, something more manageable, something more user-friendly. God didn't promise that he would make us feel better about ourselves. Do you guys know that? He never promised that he wants us to, make, he wants us to feel better, better about ourselves. If you want to feel better, take a hot shower and get a massage. Really? God didn't promise us to make us a nice middle-class family. If you want that, you know, typically a good income and a decent education might help you achieve that. 
God didn't promise to make us more prosperous than others. Jesus wasn't rich by any means. None of us most likely will ever get near the one percenters of the world. But what God has promised us is infinitely greater, greater than anything you and I could ever pull off by our own power and might because God promised this to remove guilt of our sins forever, not just a feeling of guilt, but actual condemnation. God promised to give us a new spiritual life, reborn inside, and that we become a new creation in Christ. God has promised that he himself is, is the per, and the person of the Holy Spirit will come and he'll dwell within us all his days, all our days. You are not alone. God has promised that he will unite us to his other children. You know, one thing I love about the church is this. Even if your family is across the Atlantic, even if you have no family, even if you are just lost and you feel abandoned, this is your family. Because that's what God has promised, that he will unite us with his other children in a church relationship that will be stronger and that will be richer than any blood ties. God has promised that even death, the one thing that every other person, every unbeliever in this world fears, that even death cannot defeat his people because we will live with him forever. It's not even spiritual things because our physical bodies will rise from the dead to live forever in a new heaven and a new earth. And all these things that God has promised, he has brought into our lives right now are all working towards that goal that one day will stand before him perfectly conformed in Christ Jesus. That is what El Shaddai means. This is what it means to say that we worship an almighty God, that he is able to do everything he has promised, and he has proven it, he has verified it, he has validated by the coming of Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. You see God saying, I've done it. I've done it. So how did Abraham respond? In verse 17, when Abraham heard of the impossibility of these promises, he fell face down and laughed. Now, I heard a lot of sermons. A lot of people talking about the unbelief of Abraham. And that he laughed because this promise of God was just so ridiculous. God, really, I'm 100 and my wife is 90. I get this whole promise stuff. I got Ishmael though. And now you're saying you want to, you want to be fruitful and multiply and you can do it through Sarah's barren womb? Are you saying this is laughable? And I used to believe that. But then I realized, you know what, let's let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so we turn to Romans chapter 4, verses 18 21. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Did you hear that? That's a lot different from what we probably think right now. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he has promised. In other words, this laughter wasn't one of unbelief and doubt, but it was a laughter of inexplicable joy and delight and faith. Because Abraham knew and Abraham believed that God was able to do everything he said he would do. And so in a funny way, God said, oh, by the way, you'll call that child of promise Isaac, which means laughter. I like what this one author, a poet, wrote about this. He said this. They called him laughter, 
for he came after. The father has made an impossible promise come true. The birth of a baby to a hopeless old lady, so they called him laughter because no other name would do. A cry in the darkness and laughter at night. An elderly couple sitting, holding him tight. An improbable infant, a punchline, a promise come true. They laughed till they wept. Then they laughed at their tears. This miracle baby they wanted for years would make a Messiah who'd give us impossible joy. You know, a few years ago, Grace and I, we were driving, and there was a church event the next day. But the forecast said it was supposed to rain, and rain a lot. So we prayed, and as we drove, we said, God, hold back the clouds and let the sun shine brightly. And after we prayed, we kind of looked at each other, and we began to kind of giggle. And we began to laugh, because I think we were both thinking the same thing. That how awesome is it, knowing that we worship a God who can hold back the rain, who can split the seas, who can feed thousands with just a few pieces of bread and fish, who can deliver a prophet through the belly of a fish, who can have a little kid slay a mighty giant, who became a man and loved us enough to die for us so that we can spend an eternity with him. May we know God so well that when we think of the impossible promises of his covenant with us, we would laugh in the amazing power of our El Shaddai. And by the way, God not only held the rain off, but he also brought forth clouds to shield us from the sun so we weren't frying, making it a far better day than we could have ever imagined. Again, all we were thinking about was milk. So stop dreaming of milk when God's got ice cream for us. Stop dreaming of an easier life when God's got a fuller life planned for you. Stop dreaming of comfort when God has set the cross before you. Stop dreaming of finding worth in the eyes of the world when God has poured out his own blood for you. But first, we must humbly submit ourselves to the terms of his agreement, to the terms of his covenant. You see, it is not our place to negotiate. We simply need to obey and to relinquish all control over to him. But secondly, trust, he says. Laugh in faithful joy that God is able to do what he promises. Even if we don't get it, even if it goes beyond our comprehension, just trust and laugh with joy that he is God, that he is almighty, that he is enough for you, that he is El Shaddai. Amen? Let's pray. Before we enter into our time of Lord's Supper, I wish to give you guys a moment to reflect upon the sermon you've just heard, the message that you've just heard, and the way that God is speaking to you right now. What is he saying? Are we still trying to negotiate with him? Are we still saying, God, yes, I will surrender if. If my prayers are answered in this way. If you give me this, if you heal me of that, we have to understand it's not our terms but his. And in it all, God is saying, I'm not asking anything of you, but simply for you to trust me and for your commitment to me to be unconditional. 
Maybe that's where we're at right now with him. So what is it? Brothers and sisters, friends, I want to give you guys an, an opportunity just to pray. Take a, a minute, maybe less than that. Just get your hearts right and pray and seek just after his words and what he's revealing to you at this time. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you so much that you sent your son to die on our behalf. But Father, we express such sorrow that it was because of our sins that led him to this, to this great sacrifice. And so Lord, right now, we want to humbly acknowledge the fellowship of those here who, have, who are partaking in this. And we desire, Lord, to partake in a way that's worthy of this great sacrifice. So we honor you and we bless your name that you will continue to be glorified. And we pray that we would live a life that is truly committed to you, Father, in complete trust, unconditional, knowing that you are God, that you are always faithful, that you are sufficient, that you are El Shaddai. And so we love you and we thank you. Blessed be your name. Jesus, we thank you. And we do this in remembrance of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please join me.